0: to minister to each one, every one of us, so that we may leave today. Not just saying, Happy Mother's Day, or it was good to be in God's house, but saying, I want to be more like Jesus. May that be the desire of everyone here today. For it's in your name we pray. Amen. How was your week? I'm sure you had a tough one. Ours started out last Sunday with my son, oldest one, Josiah, throwing up as I'm leaving for church. And then progressively throughout the day, not feeling too well. To the point that Monday morning, he got up and still wasn't feeling good. So we took him to the doctors on Monday and eventually to the ER on Monday night, and uh, found out he was dehydrated he wasn't doing too well, and so Monday night into Tuesday morning, I stayed with him in the hospital and um, he started to get a little better, and his brother uh, started to come down with kind of the same symptoms, and he threw up while I was watching him monday night and and so we were concerned and then he started breaking out in a rash and it covered his whole body, and he was just miserable. Tuesday, Josiah came home and feeling better. And, but then Wednesday morning, he woke up, and he threw up again. And so we took him to the doctors again, both boys, and found out a few things, and then eventually went to the ERs. He was just very lethargic and not feeling too great and couldn't keep food or fluids down. And then Wednesday afternoon, spent about four hours in the ER. Um, just waiting to get it admitted. And then Wednesday night uh, through Friday, had him hooked up to the fluids. And Noah, at the same time, was not feeling well. We found out later the amoxicillin that he was on for his ear infection resulted in him reacting to it. Uh, and so we took him off of that, and he was miserable for a few days. Um, Josiah was in the hospital um, through Wednesday, Thursday, and came home Friday. And um, we were thankful for that, thought, hey, we're turning a corner. And then Friday night, um, my sisters, who had come up from, uh, one from the cities, one from my hometown, um, she went downstairs and said, oh, no, oh, no, and here the washing machine had been plugged, and then for two or three hours had been flowing gallons of water all over our basement. And so I had to run to church here real quick, grab the extractor, and try to soak up some of that stuff. And then yesterday, I had a service master come, and, and so now there are fans blowing in my basement to dry up all that water. So it's been a week, and it's been a hard week. It's been something where uh, it's been emotionally and physically draining from my family and myself, and uh, to the point that... Um, even last night as I'm trying to prep for this morning, I'm struggling. And so I, I was going to go in a couple different ways, but then I, I thought, well, I want to I go to the Han, song of Hannah in 1 Samuel 2. And I want to walk through this story with you as I was walking through it last night and, and it was just reminded reminder of you a few things that I want to share with you and, and hopefully pull out an application for all of us that applies my week this past week, but also applies to us. Now, here in 1 Samuel, you know, it's different than the book of Hebrews, 1 Samuel's narrative. And in narrative genre, you have to treat it a little differently. You cannot say, um, as I've said in Hebrews, we need to do this or we need to do that. It's it's a little different. So I want to walk through what Hannah says in these first 10 verses, and I I totally picked this passage, not even thinking about Mother's Day, because Hannah, as a mother, is proclaiming her praise of God. So mothers, you can definitely find application here. But I want to walk through this story and and find out from these few verses what Hannah has to teach us about God, and like I said, at the end, pull out an application. But please notice from verses 1 and 2 in this story, that Hannah notes and boldly states that God is to be praised. God is to be praised. Verse 1, Hannah prayed and said, My heart rejoices in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. With her whole being, she explodes in praise to God. Context here is important. She had just been given birth to her first child and after having been barren for so many years, as we know in chapter 1, Samuel is born and dedicated to the Lord. A few years afterwards. So, for a woman who had been bearing for so many years, and that was a contextually was a, a um, disfavor, a sign of God's disfavor in in people's eyes, for her to have now children was something that was uh, quite extraordinary, and for her it meant so much. That she explodes in praise to God. The word heart there refers to to the entirety of one's being. We don't really have a word that describes that, so when we see it in the Old Testament especially, it refers to not just the heart physically, but the whole of one's being. Everything that was in Hannah was brought to bear in praising God. The word rejoice here means to exalt or praise. And so from what God did for her, her whole being rejoices in who God is and what He has done. And therefore, she cannot help but praise God and bring that to bear. So as she's exploding in praise, she notes that her strength comes from God alone, secondly. She says, my horn is exalted in the Lord. And some of you say, well, pastor, what does that mean? The horn... Uh, is a symbolic term here of strength or power. In the Old Testament, especially when we have this scenario of genre, this is poetry. And poetry, you know, if, I, I, I hated poetry in English, and with, with good reason, I don't like it. But in Hebrew, poetry is very expressive in its imagery. Okay? It uses particular images to portray a truth. Or portray a concept. And here the horn is used to portray strength or power or might or ability. And notice where it comes from. As exalted in the Lord, word, exalted means to be lifted up. And, and the, coupled with that prepositional phrase in the Lord, Hannah is sh- sh- sharing with us that her strength comes from God. For it is He who has empowered her. We hear about empowerment today in our world, Right? especially on the feminine side of things. That's not a bad thing. We talks about empowerment a lot in our world today. And I just need to empower myself. Women empowering women, men empowering men to, to some degree. Well, Hannah doesn't say, I empowered myself. She says, God empowered me. God strengthened me to have children and be able to be in this position. And brothers and sisters, may I just stop here and remind us that ultimately our strength comes from the Lord. The abilities that you and I have today, whether it be to play piano, whether it be to sing, whether it be just to get up and move around and breathe, that comes from God alone. There is no other source for our strength but God. So as as you go through life, as you find times of rejoicing, don't rejoice in what what you've been able to accomplish and do. Rejoice that God has given you the strength to do it. Because Hannah was in an unenviable position. She could not have children physically. There was something wrong. She had no way of working her way out of her situation. But God gave her strength. And the same truth is for you and I. God alone gives us strength to do what we can do. And therefore, He alone is worthy of that praise. Notice also that she continues on and says, I smile at my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. God has given her victory thoroughly, causing her to rejoice in His help. Now, if you have a King James, um, King James uses the word enlarged here. Uh, New King James uses the word as smile. I think that's the great translation. It has the idea of to make wide. Okay, She smiles at her enemies. Um, given the context of chapter 1, her, her smile comes from the direct opposite of her sadness. Because if, if you go back to chapter 1 very quickly and go to the end of to verse 8, this is, by the way, just as an aside. Guys, this is not how to treat your wife. I just, just, this is an Elkanah is not the example. Okay? Then Alcana, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? Why do you not eat? And why is your heart grieved? Am I not better to you than ten sons? You know what he's saying? Hey, I, I'm really good to you. Why are you crying? It's not the thing. When your wife's crying, that's not the thing guys to tell your wife. Okay? Just use him as an example. Okay? Verse 10, that she was in bitterness of soul and prayed to the Lord and wept in anguish. She was, she was so sad, so grieved in her heart that it came out in the way that she displayed herself. But now here's the flip side. She smiles at her enemies. The word enemies, is just a general term as... It could be the specific people we know from chapter 1 that Elkanah's other wife, which was a problem, uh, constantly berated her, was against her, was an adversary to her. So it's probably including her in that description, but also just the enemies of, 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 of barrenness. Her experience now causes her to boast or to smile at them because they have no more power. They are now considered to be less than her status. And why is this? Because I rejoice in your salvation. The word salvation can also be con- translated help. It refers to God's deliverance of his people. So she's rejoicing because of God's deliverance in her life. Her victory does not come from herself. Her ability to smile and to rejoice at her situation has not come from herself. It comes because God has helped not anything is she has done, because God saves. And so therefore she can say, because I rejoice in your salvation. Verse 2, there is no one holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you, nor there is there any rock like our God. Fourthly here from these two verses, God alone is the reason for Hannah's praise. She notes several things about God. Number one, He is the only pure God. No one is holy like the Lord. The word holy means to be sacred or pure, free from any faults or sin. We see this this theme continually in the Old Testament. God is holy. There is none like Him. He also is the only God. There is none besides you. The word beside means to, to, to accept There is none except you. There is no God except the one true God, Yahweh. And this, again, we need to put ourselves in Hannah's situation. Hannah's, if you think of history and time frame, 1 Samuel occurs at the end of the book of Judges. And what has happened in Israel's history in the book of Judges, every man did that which was right in his own eyes. There were multiple gods that were being worshipped, there were judges that had come and chastened the children of Israel, and they had repented for a time, but then they kept falling back, kept falling back. And so amid the multiplicity of worships that was going on, yes, God was still worshipped, where there are many other gods that were being worshipped in Israel. Hannah boldly states, there is no other God. to the point that she says in verse 2, nor is there any rock like our God. He is the only God who is firmly established. We've we've seen the term rock used many times in the Old Testament to refer to God as someone who can be trusted because He will never move. Unlike the gods of the pagans which surrounded her and were in her time frame, who were moved, you think about we looked at this, um, this week, several months ago, but he looked at the story of the Ark of the Covenant, which was captured in battle and was taken to the Philistines, house of worship to the temple of the God Dagon. Remember what happened to him? First night he fell down. They had to put him back up again, Which says something about your God that you have to put him back up? OK? If you have to put your God back up, that's not a God. Second night, what happens? His head and his feet are cut off, which is symbolic. And I won't get into that, but it's symbolic. It just shows that God is dominant over all gods. But God is the rock who will never move. And so that alone is the reason for Hannah's song. And brothers and sisters today, if there is no other reason for us to rejoice, can I challenge us with the truth that God alone is sufficient enough of a reason? You may be going through tough times right now. You may be going through a hard week like I just went through and my family did. But the presence of God alone and who He is is a more than sufficient reason to rejoice. So if you have nothing else to rejoice in this morning, rejoice in who God is. That He is the only God. That He is the pure God. That He is the God who will not be moved. That no matter what life life throws at us, God is still there. And that is sufficient reason to praise. Notice secondly that Hannah demonstrates God's supremacy over man in knowledge. Verses three through five. Verse three, talk no more proudly, so very proudly. Let no arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is the God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. So man in his infinite knowledge has no reason to boast. That's 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 the first two parts of verse three. Talk no more so very proudly, let no arrogance come from your mouth. The word proud means to be high or exalted. It emphasizes Uh, arrogance to the to the max and arrogance coupled with that word pride just further points to the issue of pride in one speech man has no right to be proud in what he says because he has no knowledge compared to god you and i today in, in the multiplicity of things that we've known and and experienced in our lives the knowledge we've been taught and, and, and gain through natural life experience does not compare to God. And so our boast should not be in what we know, but in the God that we know. And it is God's wisdom, secondly, that determines whether the actions of men are right. For the Lord is the God of knowledge, and by Him actions are way. The word knowledge here points to His wisdom as the standard by which He judges men. Knowledge that God has is a standard that he judges, but also knowledge is God. God is the, the author of knowledge, he's the source of all wisdom. And it is by his knowledge that our actions, our thoughts, our words are examined or tested. That's the word weighed. The picture is the balance used to weigh an object. You have counterweights over here, and then you put the object on the other side that needs to be weighed. Well the counterweight is God's wisdom. The other side is our knowledge. And that's how it's weighed, not the other way around. Which leads me to pause and ask, brothers and sisters, as you think about your wisdom, what God has enabled you to gain through the years, are you letting your actions be compared to God or yourself? Who's the standard in your life? Is it God or is it you? Because if it's you, then you don't measure up. But if God is the standard by which your wisdom, by which your actions are weighed, then you have hope. Notice also that Hannah says that God's knowledge confounds what is considered to be the natural way of things. Verses 4 and 5. The bows of the mighty men are broken, and those who stumble... Are girded with strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, and the hungry have ceased to hunger. Even the barren who has borne seven, even the barren has borne seven. He, she who has many children, has become feeble. Here, here's here's a couple, uh, some some couplets for you. I'll def- I'll define them this way. The first one in verse four: The heroes fall, but the weak thrive. The word stumble means to stagger or totter to the point of falling. This doesn't happen in the natural way of things, right? Mighty men's bows and armor doesn't break. It's the weak who break because they're not prepared. No, in God's eyes, in God's way of doing things, heroes fall, but the weak thrive. No, secondly, that the satisfied find themselves in want while the hungry are gratified. Those who are full have hired themselves out for bread and the hungry have ceased to hunger. That doesn't happen, God. It's the other way around. Those who are hungry are, are, are hiring themselves out for bread, and, and those who are satisfied, they they they're full. No, God doesn't work in our ways. It's interesting that phrase "hire themselves out" is constructed to show that this is out of necessity. They're full, but they still need to work. They still need to be satisfied. And then thirdly, the childless is blessed with children while the woman with children suffers. The word feeble here has the idea of to languish or to waste away. Again, contrary to our natural way of thinking. A woman with children is expected to thrive, but God works in such a way that the one who is barren has, has born seven and she who has many children has become feeble. That's not how it works. But with God it does. And all this is done to show that God's ways are not our ways. If you and I were writing this story, we would write it totally different, wouldn't we? But God is the author of this story. What does it say in, in, I think it's either Isaiah or Jeremiah, God says, for your ways are not my ways. For as the heavens are higher above the earth, so are my ways above your ways. And let me stop and ask you this morning, which way are you following? Are you following God's path of doing things, of, of acting, of thinking, of speaking? Or are you following your way? The way you, the way you think? The way you, the way you act? Is that your standard? Because if it is, what God's wisdom does is confound that standard. It goes and flips everything on its head. So his knowledge confounds what is being considered the natural way of things. And notice this thirdly, that Hannah is confident in the sovereignty of God over all life events. Hannah is confident in the sovereignty of God in all life events. Look at verse 6. The Lord kills and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and brings up. God is in control of all life relationships Notice that the consistent use of the word Lord before each description, either Lord or the pronoun He, shows that it is God who is involved even in the most common activities. In life and in death. In poverty and in riches. Verse 7, the Lord makes poor and makes rich. (coughs) He brings low and lifts up. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the beggar from the ash heap and sets them on princes to make them inherit the throne of His glory. Even in the very basic necessities of life, God is in control. God brings life. God ends life. God makes rich and God makes poor. God exalts and God brings down. everything that you and I can think of in in regards to life, God is in control. Even to the point that for those who question his authority, Hannah states that even the existence of the world is dependent upon this. Even if this is a question in people's minds, look at the end of verse 8 for the pillars of the earth are the lords, and he has set the world upon them. Even if people question God's control, even the very world that they are standing on is underneath his sovereignty. So you and I, man, has no right to question God whatsoever. Everything is dependent, even the very existence of the world. And again, you you and I don't think like that today, do we? People today don't think like that. They think, oh, it's, existent, it's dependent upon me. I, it, me I, I've got to establish my life. I've got to pursue whatever I need to pursue. It's all dependent upon me. No, it's dependent upon God. And the very world that you and I walk on is dependent upon Him for existence. He is in control, not us. Which leads me to just to pause for a second and ask, brothers and sisters, are we letting God be in control? are we letting ourselves, our own way of thinking, our own passions and pursuits, whatever they might be, prompt us to take control from the one on whom we depend? In your work, in your career, in your, in your life relationships, in finances, whatever it might be, are you letting God be in control? Are you trying to take that away from him? Notice secondly that God preserves those who are his and judges those who are not. Verse nine, He will guard the feet of his saints, but the wicked shall be in silent in darkness. The word guard is is, is a popular word in the in the Old Testament. It means to, to watch or to keep. So God keeps, he guards, he watches over those who are his. It reminds me of of Psalm one, being of the Psalm, um, verse six. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. God is intimately familiar with our lives, and He watches over where we go. That is, if you're a believer. If there's been a time in your life where you confessed you were a sinner, there was no way you were getting to God apart from Jesus Christ. You accepted His free gift of salvation. God is guarding your steps, but if you're not a part of His family, you're not a believer. You are sitting in darkness. But the wicked shall be in silent; shall be silent in darkness. The word "silent" here means refers to judgment to the point of being contemned to total darkness. Those who are not part of God are left outside looking in, and they have nothing to say in response. You know, you think about our world today, most of the times, defendants, criminals, those who are judged guilty, are giving something to say, right? When they're, when they're being sentenced, um, they're often given opportunity to say something. Here, God does not give that opportunity. When God judges, his judgment is final and no one can say anything against it he keeps those who are his and he provides total judgment over those who are not and no one can say anything against it because his judgment is true and notice lastly from this section is that god's judgment will be carried out god's judgment will be carried out regardless of man's opinion And then in verse 9, For by strength no man shall prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken in pieces. From heaven he will thunder against him, and the Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his, his anointed. No one has the opportunity to prevail against God. They have no strength. Those who are against God are broken in defeat. That's the word broken in pieces. The word adversaries means contrary to who are they contrary to? They're contrary to the Lord. Never a good thing when you're against God. You always experience failure every single time. And God renders judgment from His dwelling place, from heaven, not on earth, but from heaven He will thunder against Him. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. The word judge means to execute judgment, to, to pronounce sentence. And his judgment extends even to every part of creation. There is no part of this world, this galaxy, that God has created that does not and is not exempt from his judgment. God will always do what is right, regardless of the time and place. And he strengthens strengthen those who are his chosen ones. That's the word "king" or "anointed," it refers to God's chosen ones. He gives them power to accomplish the tasks that He has given them. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. He gives them purpose. He gives them the ability to do what He has called them to do. That's God. That's how He operates. No one can say anything against him. If they do, he judges, and his judgment is right and true. So you say, Pastor, what's the point? What is Hannah trying to say in her song, in her praise to God, in her recitation of truth? Let me just sum it up to you in one sentence. God is in control, so there's no need to worry. God is in control, so there is no need to worry. This past week, it was, it was easy for me to worry. And perhaps you, this past week, it was, it's been easy in your lives recently to worry, to be concerned, to, for lack of a better term, fret, to wonder what's going to happen. But Hannah testifies from these few verses in her praise to God as she is outpouring from her heart what God has done for her and who he is. She says to us today, so many thousands of years later, God's in control. And because of that reality, there is no need for you to worry. There's no need for me to worry. When, when I'm faced with uncertainties, when my son is hooked up to an IV and he's not feeling that great and I'm feeling impatient and, and just struggling with his responses, my first response is not to worry. It should be not to worry. It should be to realize that God is in control. And no matter how I'm feeling about the particular situation or circumstance, I still realize within my heart that God is in control. And maybe that's you this morning. You're in, you're in a circumstance. You don't know what's going on. You don't know how things are going to work out. You don't know what the day is going to bring. <laughs> but you can rest in the one reality that God is in control. And because of that, there is no need to worry. So my, my question to you before I get to the conclusion here is will you do that? Will you commit to this morning not worrying because you have a God who is in control? And if you're not a believer in this room this morning, if there's never been an opportunity that you've you've taken to believe in the one true God, may I encourage you to do that today because without Him, you do not have control. You have no hope. The only hope you have is with a God who is in complete sovereign control over your life. And you submit to that, you put yourself underneath his control. I guarantee you, you can be just like Hannah who overflows in praise, rejoicing in what God is doing. <clears throat> so it's been a week for my family and myself. Probably it's been a week for you too. There's no doubt that this past week we've been felt out of control which at times is not a comfortable feeling. You hear the reality of Hannah's praise to God teaches us that God is in control no matter what. And that reality needs to instill confidence in you and I so that we do not worry and rest in His control. Regardless of what we're facing, regardless of what we have in front of us, we rest in His control and stop worrying. So brothers and sisters, I encourage you, let's do that this week. Whatever faces us, even if we have another nasty week ahead of us, let's rest in His control and continue to do that until we see Him face to face.